This episode is presented by The Green Grape. Welcome to A Hungry Society. I'm Korsha Wilson, and this is the show where we talk about food, food media, and so much more. Today's guest is Kiana Mickey, Executive Director of Just Food, a position she's held since May of 2017. She enjoys sharing the gift of learner-centered trainings, cultivating community leadership, exploring the intersectionality of food justice, and advocating for sustainable and equitable food farm policies on the local, regional, and federal level. Kiana earned her Food Hub Management Certificate from the University of Vermont and her BS in Marketing from Hampton University, Virginia, Mm -hmm. 757. (laughs) That's for my family in Virginia. (laughs) She is a member of the Alliance of the Food and Racial Equity and serves on the Organizational Council of the National Sustainable Agriculture Coalition. Kiana loves being an active CSA member of Stonehenge Farm practicing vinyasa yoga, and serves on the boards of the Point CDC, Revolutionary Fitness, and the South Bronx Farmers Market. Kiana, welcome to A Hungry Society. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. You are kicking off the fifth season. Wow. Yeah. I'm honored. Yes. (laughs) It's an honor to have you here. Oh, thank you. Um, So I, I love Just Food and just food and you like you're so respected in the the food world um so it's a pleasure to have you here but for listeners that haven't heard of just food can you talk about it a little bit and what you do yeah, um, it's interesting. So Just Food has been a longstanding um, nonprofit in this food um, access landscape in our region and in our city. So for o- over 23 years, with the history of supporting urban agriculture and sustainable um, food and farm policy. But um, in during my tenure in the past like 20, 21 months, and especially now looking at 2019, we're really trying to move that forward and really kind of pushing um, to dismantle um, you know, systemic inequities and really kind of seeing food as a right that's really moving us forward. So that it's really now, instead of the mission just being helping access, you know, helping folks access um, healthy food. It's really about shifting power because we really see food justice as power and shifting power. So really shifting power and building the health and wealth of communities, communities that typically aren't centered, um, small scale folks, farmers, growers, um, producers, um, community leaders, um, historically marginalized and under-resourced folks and really being intentional about that. So when we say um, increasing food justice, when we say increasing power, mm-hmm. what does that look like um, for these for these communities? Like how does Just Food come in and help? Yeah, I think, you know, the more we continue to unfold that, we start to see the complexities of what power is in our communities. It's the power to be heard. So many of our folks are minimized and marginalized. Um, it's the power to build um, wealth wealth amongst ourselves, being centered. Um, And when I say centered, it's not being served. I think a lot of nonprofits are still rooted in charity models where they see communities of color, they see communities of mixed income or or folks that are um, underemployed as their fault. 
and you need us to come in to give you, the, you know, to leverage our resources to give those to you because you didn't know what to do. What we're doing is actually pushing back on that and saying there is ingenuity and brilliance in our communities. We've been purposely segregated from resources. Mm -hmm. So it's our role to, we see Just Food now, to push on diversifying resources to give them back to the people who they've been taken from so they can build the food access models, food projects, food businesses, however they see and fostering self-determination. So it's really what they know to be true, to really connect to that. Hmm. That's beautiful. Um, and Just Food is based in the Bronx, right? Well, um, we're, I like to think, especially in 2019, we're going to be based everywhere. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, you know, um, we typically, our office, historically, our office has been in Midtown. Um, and we thought, I think, in the past that that was very convenient for folks. But I think as we continue to move our work to project specific and really amplifying the work of our community partners, we need to be in the community that much more. So we're actually moving remote. We're leaving our office today and we're actually moving out and going to co-work at um, partner spaces throughout the city. Wow. Oh, that's amazing. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's wonderful news. Um, so. Does that mean that Just Food will be at farmers markets and CSA pickups and, you know, like how, how yeah. do you connect to uh, these spaces where food and access uh, come into play? Yeah, I think it's going to continue to look like the program work that we do with our partners. So you'll see more of, uh, you'll see us more in our trainings. I think uh, we're, what we're really trying to do is identify projects and programs and resources that will make those programs robust. Uh, robust. I think you're gonna see us probably even in some ways less because you're gonna see our partners more. We're really trying to continue to strategize how to leverage resources to amplify our partners and make Just Food a capacity builder. So sometimes you might see us with an event, you might see us um, doing site visits and, and checking in, you might see us helping run a farmer's market one day, and there are gonna be other times where we're gonna step back and we're gonna really let our partners work shine. Mm -hmm. So that's gonna look like you know a youth justice leader um, managing a conference or a group of youth running a youth justice track at our conference. It will be um, you know, new restaurants, um, new leaders being the focus and the lead on like the gala events or community-based events in the gardens or at CSAs. Mm. Wow, so it sounds like um, I like to always kind of put things into kind of similes, I guess. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's like Just Food is a platform almost for yes. Um, different people in different aspects of food production, um, food access, food security, farming, all yes. of these different um, parts of our food system. Mm -hmm. They're just food is kind of the platform for them to engage with their communities on these topics. Yeah. Is yeah, that right? Exactly. I think it's really kind of shifting just food uh, from this historical like nonprofit where we're supposed to hold it all and we have all the knowledge and it's really transforming us into a more backbone of building collective impacts to address their intersectionalities of food inequity. So that is that perfectly brings me to my next question which is intersectionality mm -hmm. and food justice. Um, 
what when you say that yep what are you talking about specifically yeah i you know for a lot of us who really look at food justice um with a different lens you really see that there's no way to look at food without looking at the injustice in food so it's really about dismantling that to work towards justice to work towards equity um, if you're looking at folks like your, you know, like us or ourselves or small scale or grassroots folks, you know, we're faced with you can't. We're living in a world in intersectionality. Our issues are intersectional. If we if we don't have enough money to pay our rent, you're that's going to impact what you're buying to eat. If you don't have enough money for lunch, um, how are you going to be able to get to your your job? So for us, it's really holding that that is true food justice, and we need to address those inequities. So if food is really a right, we really need to then use food as a tool to dismantle those systems that have kept us um, powerless, that have kept us hungry, that have kept us from building the wealth that we deserve. Mm. And so I think with us in our work, or when I talk about um, food justice, it's you know, using or leveraging just food to be a collective um, backbone who holds that as a core and who wants to push harder on dismantling inequities. Because I think what happens is what we see is all of these inequities that we're facing are complex. And yet we're expecting small grassroots groups to work independently to uh, tackle that issue. So when people say health disparities or food insecurity. Those are really big fucking issues. Right. So th this concept that everyone can do it in this really small way with limited resources and capacities, that just keeps us further, you know, further from the impact we know we can have. And I think for what Just Food could really offer are the folks that have been the most impacted to become the most activated. And I think that's our part, is that engine piece. So if it's food access, how do we support your work around growing food so you can get it to folks that need it the most? Um, are there opportunities to sell your food and get a price that is, is fair? So you're able to bring that money back to your livelihood, to your community's livelihood, build a healthy job creation. We have to kind of get beyond just looking at doing food work as happy, fun food, mm. warm and fuzzy, mm. um, and volunteer-driven. This is sweat equity, and while there's lots of times that we can and should be volunteer-driven um, and give back to community, we also need to live and we need to find ways to connect that work to building wealth mm -hmm. and build it amongst ourselves so you can feel comfortable and happy. Not even comfortable. You can feel um, like you really know where your money's going and you really know who you're supporting, whether it's a for-profit business, a restaurant, um, a farmer, um, a youth. Um, a young startup, like you can feel like you really know, because people always say they want to be closer to their food or know where their dollar goes. But in a large system, if you're shopping at a grocery store, if you're at a larger scale, you're never going to really get there. You're never going to know where that tomato came from. You're never going to know who made the sandwich in your restaurant. So we're trying to just get take three steps back to really build with folks so we can build a multiply effect. And you can see that from the city and beyond. Hmm. The word you use, activated, mm -hmm. like I love that word. That's great. Uh, I'm curious, when did you become activated? Ah, oh, that's a good, yeah. I feel like um, in terms of food, it really kind of started around 2009, 2010. Um, 
and it actually was ironically with Just Food. Um, I was a community member who was getting uh, more involved around food and really thinking about what I was feeding myself and my son. I had some health issues. I was out of work. I was dealing with a lot of stress. And I realized the more I, my food, I needed to have a simple meal, the more, the harder it was to find it in my community. Mm. I grew up in the Bronx. I was living in the Bronx. Shout out to Parkchester. <laughs> uh, shout out to Castle Hill. That's where I grew up. Um, and then I moved to Harlem. And I realized it got even harder when I moved to Harlem at that time. So that was like 12 years ago. And I started volunteering with um, a group called Harlem for Change. They connected me to a community advocacy training at Just Food. And that was really where I took this trainer of trainer um, popular education approach training where it connected my lived experience and what I knew to be true um, with a new skill set on how to organize, um, how to feel more confident about um, speaking in public, um, connecting to policy more, and making connections to what felt um, esoteric to really come to my, my world so I could have a better understanding of why it was important to say have like a strong farm bill because it would impact the food that eventually came to my community or the farmers that were not able to come into my community. So for me, that, that was really where the training started. And the more I really connected and it resonated with me, the more I had a chance to talk about it. And then I realized I wanted to have a deeper impact beyond just volunteering. And I started as the community, uh, community supported agriculture manager. And it really is kind of um, stemmed from there. It was how can I leverage my lived experience as a single black mother, um, as a woman of color, um, how do I leverage my privilege of education um, and my ability to talk to a lot of different people and not really scared to do that? Um, and can I connect that to other skills like policy and advocacy and have a bigger impact and change and wanting to see where that could go and bring in more people? So it went from unpaid work to luckily um, slightly more paid work. <laughs> <laughs> slightly more. Oh, I hear you on that. Writing started for free, me sending out pieces, and now it's slightly yeah. more paid. Um, more impact, but slightly more paid. <laughs> right. <laughs> so did you ever imagine you would be in this position you are now? No, absolutely not. Um, and people, it's funny because people ask me that all the time. They're like, I love what you said and I want to do your job. How did you do it? And it's like, I did not go to school for this. Right. <laughs> Step one. Um, no, I never thought, I never saw myself here. And even, even like a few years ago, like four or five years ago, I was really questioning what I can and should be doing or where my place was in the workspace um, beyond, you know, paying bills. And, um, and at the same time, when I look back, especially where I'm at now and what I'm doing, I realized this was the plan for me mm. in terms of how I, I think, work best with people. Um, I'm willing to kind of speak up and speak out. But at the same time, I really like working on logistics and I just want to really see transformative change. And I feel like I can leverage certain privileges that I have um, I think being light-skinned and having a really nice smile and freckles gets me in a lot of doors. Um, I think people think I tend to be a little safe or seem safe, and that works a lot when you really want to say things like, 
um, you should fund work that goes directly back to community. People are not really ready to hear that. So the more they underestimate you, the further you're able to get in. And I really like being able to leverage that for the better good and having deeper impact. That's really interesting. Um, well, we could go real deep yeah. on that. <laughs> um, but no, I've been thinking a lot lately about um, that sort of presumed safety mm -hmm. and like wanting to reframe structures and, and are you allowed in because you are presumed to be safe? And what does that mean? Yeah. If there's someone who is presumed to be unsafe, not allowed into these spaces, then like how do you navigate that? Yeah. As someone who is. So like I just personally as a writer, like think about that all the time. Yeah. Well, you know, I get to write for these great publications, but is it because like my writing is safe or because like the things I'm covering, like mm -hmm. those topics are safe? So it's a tough thing to like think about, especially as as black women. Like Exactly. I think yeah, it's it is always a challenge to navigate and it's something that is continual learning and it's a continual push. And I think maybe because of my past lived experiences in and out of work, I've learned to have a high tolerance for risk and a high tolerance for um, uncomfortable and making people uncomfortable. And I think that that part of being willing to want to fight for change and really actually also figuring out what that can look like and who else needs to be at the table. So just because I might get into a meeting and open a door and start a conversation doesn't necessarily mean I'm the best person to finish it or it should stop with me. So if I'm able to open doors and get other people in, I feel like that's where I'm able to leverage a lot of my privilege and do that well. So the more I'm able to, um, leverage the power I have as like, say, being an executive director, I want to always bring it back to um, folks and community, and I don't want to hold it. I think it's kind of, you know, people have used that concept of like leaderless leader movements. And I think for a while, I didn't really know what to think of that. And I think- What I, does that mean, leaderless leader? Well, I think, yeah, I think now for me, what it really speaks to is we, we need, it's not, always a structure that's the problem and you do need leaders sometimes it's easier to forge ahead for other folks where they may not feel as strong um, but at the same time it's being being willing to be unheralded being willing for it not to be about you being willing to actually share the power and the opportunity so it's you can be a leader, but you're not really concerned about being this charismatic, tokenized leader. You're really actually trying to leverage that space and opportunity to bring in more folks to therefore have more change. Because if we, and I think a lot of our structures, nonprofit and otherwise, tokenize a lot of us, and then we have this, this overburden of representation, and then it ends up centering on us. And then we then feel like we have to support that leader. Mm that tokenized person is then going just to become the oppressor too, because then that power feels like it rests in them and then they need to be at every table. They need to be the one saying everything. Then we also then support that because we think that's gonna get us free. And we feel like we can't critique. Exactly. Yep. You can't critique, because you can't there's speak only one. Down. You can't critique right. a, another black woman because, well, there's not a lot of us. Right. So you, you have to just like, support you and just have to support yeah even if they're wrong mm -hmm. even if they're they're going left and then that creates a vacuum 
And that doesn't create change. And especially now in these past couple of months and trying to take what's been a historically white-led organization and being the first women of color to lead it and also having to then push back on you know, folks that have been in this space a little bit longer and maybe been tokenized. Um, that's been that challenge of um, how did you how do you push back on leaders because you've been so the power has been so consolidated. And I think for me, I definitely don't want to get there um, or get to that point. But I think the only real way to do that is to kind of acknowledge that and be willing to push on it. And not everybody wants to do that. And not everybody supports that. So a lot of people want the end goal or they want the impact, but it does take a lot of um, strength to get there. Mm -hmm. And it takes a lot of work and sometimes pushing back on the powers, even the powers that we respect or the powers that lie in the people that we respect. And that should be okay. Like that's where true movement comes from. That's where true justice comes from is, you know, breaking any of those oppressions. So even if the person oppressing you is of your color, of, of your class, of, of your gender, if you're no longer truly pushing for collective power and change, then you're not actually doing the work. And being tokenized no longer should rest. Like you should be pushing back on your tokenization and moving from your leadership position and finding new ways. And I think what I'm seeing now um, beyond myself, I'm seeing this in communities and, and other spaces is that leaderless leader where it's really about the work or the impact and less about that one charismatic person who's supposed to be represent, you know, represent, representing, oh, that's not a word. Uh, <laughs> representing. <laughs> representing the struggle. Um, because it's, it's you know, I don't think it's only just on our fault and not to like get on a tangent, but I think when we talk about shifting power, you have to talk about resources. And when you talk about resources, we're also saying it's not just what we build with each other, but knowing like there's other resources that people have been withholding from us. But at the same time, they will tokenize them too. And then you have the scarcity model where only a certain number of people will have access to those resources, even for, within folks of color. So it's really pushing back on that too and saying, you know, to open that door to get to resources, it's great for you. No one's saying you shouldn't do your work, but at the same time, how do we get that more disseminated out in our community right. to truly have the impact on the grassroots level or at a for-profit level that speaks to, that will have an impact on all of us. And it shouldn't just rest on your one individual work or table. Mm. Sorry. Yeah, no, don't be sorry. That was all, that was, I I said something because, like, that hit on something that I've been mm -hmm. thinking a lot about. Yeah. Because there is that, like, pressure of, like, you know, people are like, oh, you're so inspiring as, mm -hmm. like, a black woman food writer. And it's like, I'm not the only one. Exactly. There's, there's more. And they should be getting, like, they should be getting pieces too. It, exactly. Like, let's push back when we, if you have the same conversation, say for instance, when we're talking about black female farmers, if your conversation goes back to the same two women, I don't doubt that they're awesome, but then you're missing the whole story and you're missing folks that are really doing the work still because they don't, you're not even, you don't even know that their work is happening. Mm. So, you know, I, I don't want to, when I say that, it's like, if you think you know two, there's probably a hundred other folks doing it. 
And I would really push ourselves to find that. And I think even for me, what, how am I leveraging my power to really get other folks um, to be amplified and heard? And at the same time, when do I step back when it's not, I don't need to be there? And how do I make sure that they get unheralded? Because right now, not everyone hears them and sees them. I always, you know, people will always say like, make that one connection and they just tell you about that one black speaker, that one black writer, the one black farmer, the one young <laughs> farmer, the one black young farmer who also <laughs> happens to be female. And it's just like, there's so many of us. And if there aren't, then that's where the work is and right. needs to be. Right, right. So how can listeners support Just Food? Yeah, um, there's a few really good ways right now, especially as we move in 2019. Um, you know, shameless plug, we're still a nonprofit. So donations, unrestricted donations by individuals, groups, and larger um, amounts are also really helpful. If you go to justfood.org uh, backslash donate, um, every dollar counts right now. We're really scaling um, up to really scaling down to really um, have impact on a project level. So those dollars will really go to helping cover salaries and overhead for us to really get out in the community. If folks um, want to support something even more um, particular, um, since we are starting to move re remote and working in communities, um, it would be really helpful, like a donation of $300, um, a donation of $600, so it actually cover our residency at a co-working partner space. Mm -hmm. For 300 would cover us for a month, two, uh, 600 would cover us for two months. And that would uh, um, avail us to be able to support another co-working, another partner who has um, space for us to be able to build and um, base build in their space and cover our costs of using it. Oh, oh that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, please, please donate to Just Food. It is a great organization. And uh, all right, we're only halfway <laughs> through this and I'm already like feeling great about it. And like me too. <laughs> I didn't even look at my notes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more of Kiana Mickey. This episode is presented by The Green Grape, a family of three businesses on Fulton Street committed to supporting small-scale farms, celebrating seasonality, and delighting our customers. Order local, pasture-raised meats and cheeses to pair with our selection of fine wines and spirits, and we'll deliver it to your door at no extra charge. From great local gifts to providing you all you need for a delicious meal, The Green Grape offers truly special and hard-to-find products created by New York's community of local makers. Support independent grocers and our site to learn more. Visit greengrape.com. That's green with an E. G-R-E-E-N-E-G-R-A-P-E.com. All right, so we are back with Kiana Mickey of Just Food. Oh, Hi, yes, I'm here. Sorry. <laughs> Awkward pause. Okay. <laughs> um, so hey. you were talking about um, growing up in the Bronx. Yes. Um, do you have any memories of dining when you were there? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, my life, uh, so I was born in Richmond, Virginia. 
Uh, but I, I moved to the Bronx. My mom's a, um, a Bronx girl um, when I was two and a half. So my life, my early life was really parts were in the Bronx um, on Castle Hill in Turnbull. Um, and the other part was downtown, actually, in the village. Uh, my mom was special. Uh, so she had a lot of interesting life and, um, and loved culture. So my dining experiences, I feel, are either the most early memories I think of it is having this um, for, from like five years old until probably 14, having Friday dinner out mm -hmm. with my grandmother and my grandfather before he passed when I was 12. It was just the three of us, even when my brother and sister came along, and most of the times even without my mother, <laughs> it would just be us. And I just remember um, we there used to be like Howard Johnson's in the Bronx. I know some people wouldn't remember that. I um, remember, yeah, Kojo's. <laughs> yep. Kojo's. Yep. What? Fried clam dinner? <laughs> uh, yeah, so I just remember just having these really consistent experiences of not just having home-cooked meals every other time, but always them wanting to go out and like treat themselves and, and bringing me with that. Um, and also just talking a lot of older folks. Um, the other flip side of the dining experience for me uh, is with my mother in particular. And because she would hang out downtown and had friends downtown in all different like spaces and places, we, it just opened the door to eating and, and trying new things when you didn't really have a choice. And it really helped. So I just remember places like Lechesco's that used to be near St. Mark's Place. It's like Polish diner. Oh, okay. And I still have like a love of diners. Oh, God. Like, I would go to a diner any day at time. <laughs> it's called Pichel. Lechesco's. Lechesco's. It used to be Lechesco's on the corner. People OGs would know. Um, but right across from Thompson Square Park. Um, I can still think of those home fries. Um, I think of eating sushi for the first time or going down, down, you know, down to Chinatown or, or meeting folks um, that actually there were family businesses. My mom was really big on that, even without really, I think, thinking about it. She really liked community and wanted to find ways to support community. Um, she also worked as um, a health inspector. Mm. So she also, I guess, knew places to eat as well. So it was... She the clean the clean places to eat, yeah. Yeah, and sometimes she was just like, I just like this place. <laughs> Even if maybe I had to give them a different rating. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was really interesting to be able to have this very um, traditional experience with my grandparents, um, which was very, like, simple and safe and conservative and at the same time have this very interesting wild experience through food with my mom in the city um in every which way from sometimes she would just want to go fancy and sometimes it would be really casual just you know randomly going to city island at two o'clock in the morning eating at tony's like it runs the gamut and of course pizza you can't like and a lot of pizza yeah lots of pizza before um the show we were actually talking about how your son loves pizza oh yes Pizza connoisseur, pizza and cheeseburgers. And cheeseburgers. <laughs> Where, uh, which uh, pizza spots are his favorites again? Oh yeah, so we live in Harlem, so Patsy's is definitely um, his go-to in Harlem, and then in the Bronx, Circle Pizza, right Circle off the Sixth Train. Okay. Yeah, Parkchester. I have to keep that one in mind <laughs> for when I do my next pizza crawl. Exactly. I'll be sure to go there. Um, so I ask every guest this, mm -hmm. but. You can name the restaurant if you want to, but you don't have to. 
Uh, what's one of the worst dining experiences you've ever had? Yeah, I was thinking about that. I feel like I can't recall a particular place right now, but I think something that really ruins my experience or I start to think about a lot more is how the staff is treated mm -hmm. and how invisible the back staff is. And I think when, the more I'm, I notice that, the more... Some places you can feel it and see it, and it's, the dynamics really, really um, obvious. And I feel like those are the parts or the those times are where it feels the worst to me. Um, like recently, I was at a place, and it was like right before it was like Christmas Eve, and I she at the the waitress I was uh, talking to, and I've seen her often because um, I go there to hide when I'm working. And um, she was saying that she had to work on a holiday where she didn't want to mm -hmm. or didn't need to. And it's just, it's those kind of experiences, like not feeling heard or people feeling um, that they can't be their full selves that really, I think, for me, impact my dining experience. Um, even though it doesn't maybe, you don't see it on the plate, you feel it in the folks mm -hmm. and that impacts your food. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I um, I was having a conversation with someone about how rare it is that, like, restaurant workers get um, paid time off or, yeah. like, any sort of health care or anything. And they were like, really? It's rare? And I was like, yes. It's Super rare. Very rare. Yeah. So, yeah, when I see, like, staff doesn't seem to want to be there or have, like, really good dynamics with each other, it, I can't help but wonder about the actual food on the plate. Right. Do you care about the food if, you're, if you don't care about the people? Exactly. Or care. Mm-hmm. Definitely true. So what do you think of New York's dining scene? I mean, you've been <laughs> eating in downtown Manhattan since you were two and a half yeah. when you moved here. So what do you think? Oh, man, it's interesting. I mean, one, I don't get out a lot because I'm always <laughs> working at a nonprofit. But I, what I have noticed with the dining experiences, it seems like a lot of things have gotten really sanitized and gentrified but at the same time there's very interesting opportunities of vibrancy and so like we recently did um, a gala so a gathering um, a fundraiser where we supported um, small businesses and culinary talent to connect to local food so um, community to come can come to like a gala or event an anti-gala if you will and what I really liked about that experience and what it makes me excited about is while you'll see restaurants that seem so expensive or so inaccessible in New York City, there is also this really burgeoning or emerging community that wants to continue to make food accessible and real and still connect on um, breaking bread on, on a cultural level. And I think what really excites me is continuing to find ways to find those folks, um, support those folks, eat that good food, and then be able to share it with other people. So uh, that gala really opened me up to so many other different, either brick and mortar restaurants or folks that are chefs like um, Tunde or the folks that like Egg, um, Lalita, um, you know, Chef JJ um, at um, the Life Hotel. Mm -hmm. So the more we, I feel like I see folks, Brownsville Culinary Center, mm -hmm. the more I see folks doing this really good work and connecting to real food, that keeps me grounded and excited. And it just reminds me of the, the old New York. Like there's still places and ways to find, whether they're mom and pop or they're actually small businesses, you know, they don't have to be mom and pop. They could just be real. They can be people that look like us. They can be young. They can be old. Like, 
people who were still trying to connect to food and connect to culture and building that and keeping that in New York is really important to me. Mm. Do you have any favorite restaurants at the moment? Oh, yeah. Oh, there's a lot. Um, I definitely, a place that really speaks to home to me um, is in the Bronx, in the Port Morris section of the Bronx, the Port Morris Distillery. Um, Bobby and Ralph have really created um, really great businesses and space. So, yeah, food connects to alcohol with me in a lot of times. <laughs> so um, it feels like home. It feels like community. Um, they use local ingredients in order to create their, the Añejo and all their different spirits. Um, oh, I, so they do spirits? Like, it's yes. not like a, I guess that would be a brewery, not a distillery. But I was thinking beer for some reason. No, they're an actual distillery. Okay. Um, and they have the distiller there, and you're able to come see it. And they are working with culturally relevant um, recipes. And it just, you know, it really feels like home going there. Um, to be able to kind of get a drink and know where it came from, know that that the mash that they use is local, locally sourced. That those folks are the folks that made it. Um, the the community there is really great. They've expanded to the tavern on the corner, which is nice. So you can oh, also get okay. be- local beer. Okay. Um, and my favorite thing to do is go to PMD, uh, Port Morris Distillery, and then order La Marada, um, in, um on um. Oh, it's also in the South Bronx, but they'll deliver there. La so, Mirada is a deli- uh, it's so good. I so went there good. for the first time last month. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. and I was just like, wow. Yeah. I, I, I'm so sad I lived in Jersey so far from it. But well, Next time you're here. Yeah, if I'm in the Bronx, if I'm not getting the Circle Pizza, I'm probably going to be at La Mirada. But, yeah, I love support. Like, La Mirada right now, I was there recently as the thing, the, it's one of the places that's really resonating for me. Mm-hmm. Um, the food is good. The people are, are are great, and also the folks that are are, are actually cooking and the chef and the work. And I think we really need to support them right now. They're going through some. They're getting some pushback from the police, yeah. and I think folks need to really come out and show for them. One, they're making great food, but they're also great people, and they're really supporting community. And I think we won't have folks like that. Um, if we don't come out and support them. Right. And La Morada, by the way, is like delicious, like Oaxacan-style Mexican yes. food. It's it's amazing, and I think everyone should go there. Everyone should go there. Yeah. So we're already at our last question. Oh, wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, if you could have your last meal in a restaurant, mm. where would it be, and who is invited? Oh, right. Uh, yes. My last meal would probably be on a beach um can i invite people who are alive or alive dead uh celebrities you've never met them before like whoever in the like history of the world that you will want okay last meal uh on a beach maybe in the south we will be eating crabs and shrimp and collard greens my Aunt Florence would be there. She would have made her potato salad. Um, my grandmother would be there. She would have made her mac and cheese. Um, and um, I should have a better answer for no. that. No, <laughs> that's good. That sounds really good. <laughs> um, and uh, definitely my son. Honestly, there would be um, farmers uh, like Cheryl and Renee um, and food from the Kelly Street Garden. Uh, Maggie and Dee would bring some vegetables over from Rock City Farm. 
Um, there would definitely be some alcohol, so um, Ralph would have definitely had to bring some in Yeho <laughs> and some coquito. From PMD? From in, PMD in okay. the Bronx. Yeah. Okay. Last meal, yeah, we got to go all out. Yeah. Oh, and chocolate cake. I definitely would need somebody to make me the best chocolate cake, and I'm always on the search for that, so. Okay. <laughs> Anybody listening knows good ch- chocolate cake, send it to me. I'll send it to Kiana. Yes. You will have good chocolate cake. How many people are we talking? Like 20 or so? Oh, I would say 5 to 20. Five. I know. Is that weird? Is <laughs> that random? a big range. Such a big range. <laughs> <laughs> As many people who are willing to, like, talk really loudly with me uh, and, like, talk back. <laughs> Sometimes five, sometimes 20. Oh, that's great. And then, see, I'm a, like, my last meal would be on the water, too. Yeah. You know, I just walk into the water afterwards. Ooh. Yeah. yeah. That's, it's Ooh, so that's dramatic. It's so uh, dramatic. That's so Frank Ocean. <laughs> it is very Frank Ocean. But I like it. Yeah, I like it, too. <laughs> well, Kiana, thank you for coming. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. And you're welcome back anytime. Thank you. Yes. we Will do. <laughs> <laughs> and um, how, where can listeners find out more about Just Food? Oh, yeah. So please check us out on on um, Instagram, um, Just Food NYC, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Our website is um, actually, if people want to help and support, if you have website background, you can help our volunteer, Emily Shoon. Shout out to her. Any more capacity we can do to get our website, for um, justfood.org, from a landing page back up and relaunched. Um, but you can find us there. And my personal is Ragamicky. 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 That's really cute. Thanks. <laughs> thank you so much for being here. No, really. Thank you. This was fun. And thank you for listening. We'll catch you next week on The Hungry Society. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.